Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. And on this episode, we are going to have Kina from Historical AF Podcast doing some Anne Boleyn conspiracy theories. So we're really excited to have her on in the middle of the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Pen Ultimate episode. Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, what are you drinking today, Al? I'm just drinking a grapefruit liqueur. You know, I just need wow. something refreshing. That's pretty good. I've got a uh, Pacifico Clara beer over here what flavor what does it taste like what are the notes oh there are no notes on this one i don't think because this is not from the place that i work at but it is just just the same delicious and guys before we hop into our episode on anne boleyn today remember that there are two episodes live on our patreon page one on aristotle onassis who as we learned after we recorded the episode is a dick and uh Not a great guy, (laughs) drugging people. Uh, A date raper. But we also made another one on good guy Otis Redding. And that one is live on Patreon as well. And we also changed up our tiers. So you can get early access to our episodes for a dollar now. And you can get those bonus episodes for $3 a month. So we wanted to make it more accessible for you guys. And yeah, we are going to go on a summer break. I thought I should mention that now. We're going to go on a summer break and we are going to release a couple of mini-sodes that I have pre-written some about other Kennedy periphery people and the other wives of Henry VIII. You know, go back and listen to our Catherine of Aragon episode if you want to get caught up in the 1500s to the point we are at now. But definitely we are going to be present, but we ain't going to be working. No, I need a break. Yes, we are going to be tanning and um, enjoying ourselves and um, just, you know, letting the pennies roll in from the podcast. So, Nathan, tell us what was going on in 1501. Yeah, so I could not get a lot because, wow, that's a long time ago, over 500 years. But we've got Martin Luther starting to go to school at the University of Erfurt in Germany. This one, I wasn't sure, like, if it actually happened in 1501 because I saw it that it was also credited a couple of years later. Michelangelo, um, he's at least awarded the contract to begin work on the Statue of David uh, in the Duomo in Florence. But Have I, you been again, to Florence? Have you seen that? I, I saw that. I saw his little dick, and oh my God, it's magnificent. It's, cr- it's like wild that it's still hundreds of years later. Like, great condition. They, they know how to handle that thing. Looking good. Yeah. So we got also uh, Nicholas Copernicus installed as a canon of Fraunberg Cathedral. Maximilian of Austria and Louis Twelfth signed the Treaty of Trent, recognizing some recent French conquests. So France is just taking some more land. Um, and also Catherine of Aragon marries Prince Arthur. And I was just talking to somebody that, again, yeah, if you have access to the Catherine of Aragon episode, highly recommend listening to it before hopping into this one so you can be all caught up. And speaking of the Catherine of Aragon episode, thank you to the people who left us nice iTunes reviews about it. So if you're sitting here listening to this episode now, I would care more 
if you left us a good iTunes review because you've already given me a penny. But let's finally hop in to Anne Boleyn, Anne of a Thousand Days. Anne was born to Thomas Boleyn and Lady Elizabeth Howard. Thomas was born around 1477, and he's a little bit older than our previous subject, Catherine of Aragon, and he was born at Blickling Hall in Norfolk. His father had a knightship that was bought for him by his dad, who was a merchant, and his mother is a co-heiress of the Earl of Ormond, which comes up a little bit later. We don't really know about when he married Elizabeth Howard, but we do know that they were married by 1499, when Thomas was about 22. One of her ancestors on her father's side was actually a Lord Mayor of London. And Elizabeth Howard, she was a daughter of the second Duke of Norfolk. And he had babies on babies on babies. Man had 17 children by two wives who were cousins. The first one was born like 23 years before the second one. It's kind of nasty. But, you know, that's just how the Game of Thrones works. Mm Mm-hmm. Elizabeth was born around 1480, so when she married Thomas, she was about 19. Uh, This is a relatively late age for a woman of her time to marry. You know, Margaret Beaufort was married at, like, two the first time, had sex at 12 the first time, and then there are other, of course, women throughout history who were married very young. The Dukes of Norfolk, they were on Richard III's side during the Wars of the Roses and the Battle of Bosworth that we talked about in the first episode, and... The Battle of Bosworth is when she's five and her father survives a political shakeup and she ends up growing up at court. Thomas said in letters that his wife was pregnant about once a year for the next 10 years of their marriage, but only three of their children survived to adulthood. Mary was probably the oldest and she had a brother named George who we will talk about more later. The thing about their ages is because, you know, these are just, uh, they're, not an illustrious family necessarily. They do have, you know, a pretty high standing, but they're still a little bit middle class. So you're not really writing down the ages of your kids. You don't know if they're going to survive. But typically, if it was the first daughter or the first son or the first child, they would have written that down. And no one said that about Anne. No one said Anne born first. So we don't really know. Which brings us to her disputed birth date. So Anne was born anywhere from 1500 to 1507. The sources vary, but for my own peace of mind, she's born in 1501 at Blickling Hall. Although some historians also consider that she might have been born at Hever Castle in Kent, which is another family seat of hers. There's this other amazing woman, and there's just so many amazing women who are just popping off in the 16th century. And we can't talk about all of them, but one I really wanted to talk about was Margaret of Austria. She's a huge figure in the 15th century. First, she was married to Catherine of Aragon's younger or older brother in um, a double wedding, but he died in the spring of 1513, about six months after the marriage. And an anecdote I didn't include, and I wasn't going to include, but we're here, so I'm going to say it, is that when she was on her way to Spain, they thought that the marriage was doomed because they met a huge storm and she wrote her epitaph and it said, here lies Margaret, the willing bride, twice married, but a virgin, she died. So Margaret, big bitch. We like her. She was pregnant when her husband, John, died. However, uh, she gave birth to a stillborn daughter and uh, that opened the way for Juana La Loca to become queen of Castile. Margaret of Austria, she ruled over the Habsburg Netherlands in behalf of Juana's son, Charles. And she was the only woman ever elected to rule in the 16th century by elected assembly. 
Thomas, Anne's father, he is a diplomat under Henry VIII, and he's charming, he's fluent in French, and he definitely wins over Margaret. Margaret likes Anne so much that she offers her a place to stay with her and be educated with some of her other nieces who were also under her guardianship. And she, yeah, she's got like some Habsburg nieces that she's also watching because, of course, she doesn't have any kids. Usually, young girls would be educated, you know, at home. So it makes sense that she was born in 1501, if she's in 1513, 1514, 1515, that she's going abroad to be educated, not in 1507. We have writings for her from this time that I also think rule out Anne being born in 1507 because her writing level wouldn't have been high enough for the complex letters that she leaves behind. Like, it doesn't look like something a girl of six or seven would be writing. It looks like something that a teenager would write. While living at court with Margaret, she signs all her letters, Anna de Boulin. And this is where Anne, she flexes her French. She learns math, history, grammar, and she also loves chess and hunting. They called her Le Petit Boulin. And some people take this that it meant she was six years old, like Le Petit is in she was six. But others think that this is to contrast her from her other family members who are also figures at court. And another place that she flexed to the French was when she went to France. Um, Al, have you ever gone to France? Yes, I have. Yeah, actually, you know, I studied abroad in France. Um, I studied abroad when I was 14 in Strasbourg, France, uh, right wow. on the border with Germany. Then uh, when you and I were in the Netherlands, I went to Paris mm -hmm. with um, one of our friends. She got robbed. Uh, oh, yeah. A lot of people then, in our, our grade got robbed. That was, yeah, that was not good. Whenever anyone got robbed, I was like somewhere watching The Simpsons, had my hands in both my sweatshirt pockets. Like, oh ain't nobody taking my shit. Our fatal fortune, Anne, she went all over France. And 1514 is around the time uh, they think that she started uh going there where she's a maid of honor for the queen mary who's marrying henry the eighth and after the wedding is over and becomes a maid of honor to mary's 15 year old stepdaughter queen claude and here she stays in claude's service for about seven years and in that time she completes her study of french she is taking interest in the arts fashion illuminated manuscripts literature music poetry and religious philosophy. And at the same time, she's thought to have gotten to be acquainted with King Francis I, sister of Marguerite de Navarre, who authored some works on Christian mysticism that bordered on heresy at times. It's believed that she and her circle encouraged Anne to learn about religious reform. There's also a historical dispute that Anne might have actually been in France to serve Marguerite, and their letters show the deep affection that they had for each other. Despite all of the knowledge Anne was acquiring, she was generally thought of as a very happy child. She flirted, gossiped, and joked as much as any other person in France, and exerted a very powerful charm. Her experience in France made her a very faithful Christian. She was all in on the new tradition of Renaissance humanism. And one thing to note in the seven years was that Claude gave birth to five children. So this idea of how important it is to be queen, bear children, she's seen it in a lot of um, women in her life, including Claude. Um, also, Claude's philandering husband, probably not the best example of what a good relationship is for Anne, what a happy marriage looks like, but more on that later. 
When she returned home, uh, when her father calls her back to England in 1521, many believed she became, quote, so graceful that you would never have taken her for an English woman, but for a French woman born, unquote. And, you know, she wanted to make an advantageous match, but she also wanted to fall in love. She's feeling these Renaissance ideas. So when she returns to England, she's about 20 years old. And, you know, that's the time she's going to get put on the shelf. She needs to start making a match because her time's running out. Her father has arranged for her to be married to James Butler, the ninth Earl of Ormond. As we said, her mother was one of the co-heiresses to the earldom. And by linking those two families back up, it would have solved any dispute or claim that the Bolins might have taken over the butlers at any point and any infighting that could have happened. So the king approves of the match, but, you know, and she's dragging her feet. She's not into it. And uh, this never comes to fruition. Subsequently, she's betrothed to Henry Percy, who's the heir to the earldom of Northumberland, which is a really good title to have. And remember, this is also a time where engagements are basically as good as marriages. And all you really need to do is make a promise to marry someone else. And you were married in the eyes of God. So people think that they might have actually consummated this relationship because she really wanted to seal the deal of her position as countess. But this could also be some conjecture, some conspiracy about Anne. And we actually do have some evidence of this, though, and evidence that there might have been, you know, not a kosher relationship between them because she wrote a letter to a woman named Lady Winfield before her marriage to the king, like, humbling herself before her. Like, I got you if you need anything. And, like, I know you know something about me and keep it quiet. But for some reason, you know, the king, he did not like this match. And he actually he actually forbade Henry Percy and Anne's engagement and said that Anne was not high enough station, you know, that a knight's daughter is not high enough for um, the Countess of Northumberland. And maybe, though, this was because Henry had actually already noticed Anne for himself, because something we didn't mention is that in France, while Anne was there, her sister was actually, she was at the contrasting court of King Francis. So Mary, she's become the royal mistress to King Francis. And while this is a really important position, you kind of can't say no, her father's embarrassed. Thomas is embarrassed and he recalls her in 1519 just for Henry to have eyes for her and start fucking her too. So there's something about Mary, guys. Must be it. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's something about Mary. So Thomas isn't trying to mess this up with his daughter, with his second daughter, the only other daughter that he has. He's a little bit embarrassed that his daughter is, his first daughter has become royal mistress to two different kings, has made a non-advantageous match with William Carey that people wonder if their children, Catherine Carey, etc., are fathered by the king. So they don't want no more embarrassment for Anne, and they kind of want to keep her away from the king. That's why they're trying to make her all these matches. This also starts the feud between Anne and Cardinal Wolsey. So Cardinal Wolsey, he was Henry's bestie. Like, basically, his henchman, his... Ooh. Ooh. Who's the Game of Thrones character that's the eunuch? Varys. That guy Varys. Also called the Spider. He is definitely a Cardinal Wolsey type. And, you know, actually, Percy, he ends up dying in... 1537, which is a huge year. You know, it's right after Catherine of Aragon. It's right when Mary Tudor, Henry's sister, dies. So it's a, that's a big year for death. So I think that the heartbreak is kind of what killed this dude because he never had children. It seemed like he didn't like his wife, Lady Mary Talbot, afterwards. 
but Anne's super embarrassed about her second failed engagement. She's now 22 years old. She's our age, freaking out, shaking in her boots. And she goes home to Heaver Castle to plot her next move, where she becomes enamored with Thomas Wyatt, who's her neighbor. And apparently he damn fine. You know, like the Holbein's quick portrait of him, that shit cute. He is pretty. He's athletic. He's a poet. But he's married. Oh. Yeah. So it's not really an option for Anne. And, you know, we have their letters. Their letters survive today, which also imply that their relationship may have been more than kosher. But we cannot say for sure. They continue this flirtation until Anne is actually called back to court to serve Catherine of Aragon. And there's a whole bunch of anti-Bolin rumors um, that actually put Henry to be her actual father and place her birth date at 1507 because... I think we mentioned this in the last episode that Henry had an illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, whose mother was Lady Elizabeth, or not Lady Elizabeth Blount, she actually wasn't a lady, Bessie Blount. So people got Lady Elizabeth Howard and Elizabeth Blount confused because Elizabeth Howard became Elizabeth Boleyn. They got those two women confused. So there was a little Mm -hmm. bit of conjecture that Henry fathered Anne when he was 16. But guys, that didn't happen. That's just crazy. This comes up a little bit later, but Henry needs a dispensation to marry Anne. You know, he needed a dispensation to marry Catherine of Aragon. He needs a dispensation to marry Anne because he's apparently had sex with one of her close relatives. So one time Henry actually says, and this is recorded in history by, I think, Chapuis, is that they said, so Henry, you be banging the sister or the mother? And he said, only the sister, never the mother. Because that was a rumor, and he actually said in the middle of court when they're writing out his dispensation and how they're going to ask for it. Like, nah, 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 I didn't do that shit, but um, I was with the sis. Let's jump to 1528. Henry is adamant about getting rid of Catherine, of course, as we talked about in our last episode. And there is a huge outbreak of sweating sickness. Henry, he's messed up from his brother dying, so he flees London from the sweat. Anne flees too back to Heaver Castle, but she is sick as well. Henry sends his second best doctor to attend her, and I can't tell if that is a slap in the face. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> her sister's her sister Mary's husband dies during this outbreak, and Thomas, their father, thinks that he can make a more advantageous match for her. But again, she marries someone out of the spotlight and without lands. Remember, Catherine was banished back in 1531 and Anne is given Catherine's room. In 1532, when Anne's at a dinner party, a bunch of women march upon her and they try to rip her to shreds and she barely escapes by barge. While she is de facto queen, she has actually a lot of power. She gives out patronages, receives diplomats, which is not something the not queen does. In September 1532, she is made Marquess of Pembroke, and she's actually the only woman in history who has ever been granted her own Marquisate. Henry even invested her in the role himself. You know, he didn't delegate this to anyone else. He threw a huge party to install her in this position. And Henry then elevates her father to the Earldom of Wiltshire, which is actually where a bestie of mine's family is from. And he gives his former mistress, Mary Bolin, a pension of £100 a year. Now that she is a widow, soon after returning from Calais to Dover, Henry and Anne marry in a secret ceremony on November 14th, 1532. And she soon becomes pregnant around the second week of December 
and they have to legalize the first wedding because it was unlawful at the time. It was bigamous at the time. And there was a second wedding service in January the following year, in January 1533. And now events are moving quickly. So Anne's pregnant with Elizabeth, and it's starting to become more and more clear every day. So she is crowned June 1st, 1533, in a huge ceremony at Westminster Abbey. And she is actually the last queen consort of England to be crowned separately from her husband. And so unlike any queen consort, regardless, she was actually crowned with St. Edward's crown, you know, the really old famous one. And this is a crown that had only been used on monarchs, but they use this on Anne because they really do believe that she's going to have a son who will be the monarch. Mm. So it's kind of like a coronation for the unborn child as well. They had actually uh, taken her to Westminster on a barge that was previously Catherine of Aragon's. And she wears white cloth of gold. She's carried in a litter through the city. And, you know, a lot of people don't even tip their hat to her. They just basically ignore her. And in accordance with tradition, she also wore a gold coronet beneath her hair, which flowed freely. You know, women, they usually have their hair in French hoods, bonnets, stuff like that. But here her hair is just flowing down. And the public response, you know, generally is lukewarm. People really did love Catherine of Aragon. So please welcome Kina from Historical AF Podcast. Okay, everyone, we have the most exciting treat for you today. We have Kina from Historical AF Podcast here with you today to tell us some conspiracy theories and misconceptions about Anne Boleyn. Take it away. Hi, yes, I'm Kina and Historical AF is a history podcast where I, a historian, deliver some weird, funny eerie and morbid historical nuggets and one of my favorite people in history is Anne Boleyn. I love her so much and I think it's because of all these misconceptions and she goes down in history as being this kind of weak. She gets a really bad edit in history and I think that's what always drew me to her because the more you learn about her you realize that people were making up some wild wild things and I'm sure you've heard a few of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've talked about a couple of them. Like, how could she be born in 1501 and also 1507? How could Henry (laughs) have been her father? Oh, yeah. I didn't even include that one just because it's just crazy. There's it it can be easily disproven. (laughs) So the first one, which is probably the one that makes my blood boil the most, is that Anne was this manipulative, tease, seductress, concubine who set out to become queen and stepped on everybody in her way to get what she wanted. And it was a total fallacy based on what other people are saying about her because she wasn't very popular. You know, the people in court hated her would be a really nice way of putting it (laughs) even ambassadors to the court called her a concubine when they were being polite and when they weren't being polite they're calling her just a flat-out whore and this is in historical documents it's not great but i feel that she was a threat because she was very bold she had a very powerful personality and she was political which a lot of queens back then they just wanted you to look pretty and have children and she had missions she had things she wanted to do some say she was a catalyst for the protestant reformation 
Some people go as far as calling her a martyr for Protestant Reformation. Just kind of depends on what sources you're looking at. But I do think she had a really influential part in that, mostly because she was reading these books that were technically heresy until they split from the Catholic Church. And she was like, hey, Henry, read these books. They're really cool. And he's like, sure. And so I think it kind of planted some seeds. So when they split from the church, he was like, all right, I already got these ideas from these other people. She also gave everybody in her household these books of Psalms. She elected bishops that were reformists. So she kind of put a lot of people in court that were there to spark the Protestant Reformation. And then on the flip side, you could say that when Elizabeth was queen, everybody was trying to uh, spruce up Anne's image because she was Anne's daughter. And they were writing all these nice things saying she was a martyr. It can go either way. Regardless, most accounts say she was not even interested in Henry and he was kind of stalky. Seems like it's seven years of him running after her, not her running after him. Mm. Yes. And that's the other thing. A lot of people read these letters and they're like, they're so romantic. They're so beautiful, but they're kind of creepy because <laughs> they're very one-sided. He was kind of obsessed with her, but a lot of people try to say that she used her sexuality as a tool and she used it to, you know, gain leverage it just kind of depends on the perspective but regardless there's really no proof that she said about you know being queen and she was going to do everything she could to do it and i highly doubt she was a seductress or as mean as they said or definitely not a concubine she's just a very powerful woman who made a lot of people mad (laughs) her power took away the power from some people in court so i think that's what did it because they had Henry's ear until he was just completely enamored by her and he was listening to her and they're like, oh, we can't have that. We are women. women. Yeah, women can't be in power. Women can't tell us what to do. What? And she was also pulling things like the heresy laws, which a lot of those people were really digging because they could just put anybody to death for being a heretic. So she, she just made a lot of people mad. My other favorite lie about Anne Boleyn was that she was a witch. Oh my God. <laughs> There's no proof she was a witch. Although, fun fact, I guess in Harry Potter, I guess I've never caught this. Her portrait is supposedly hanging somewhere. And people are like, oh, oh she's a witch. See, I never caught that, but she never caught not. that. I've read all those books twice. Do yeah. I guess it was the movies. I don't know. I missed it. But yeah, she was not convicted of being a witch. She was convicted of treason, adultery, and incest, not witchcraft. And a lot of the witchy things attributed to her were after her death. And it was by people that really, really hated her as well. Yeah. She she had a opposite of a fan club. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the, the books of heresy didn't help that image either. Like, yeah. Yeah. Knowing- that was part Mm -hmm. of her past as well. Yeah. And there were some quotes about Henry being mad at her and he would just be like, you bewitched me, blah, blah, blah. So people kind of ran with that, but she was not a witch. And if she was, it was not written down, but witchcraft wasn't something they could have really tried her for anyway. So they wouldn't have included that. The next one is probably the most popular. I think I heard, uh, or I've heard from people that she had six fingers on one hand. (laughs) Such a weird thing to make up about somebody, but here we are. So there's no evidence at all that supports that she had six fingers on one hand. And if she did, there's no problem with that, except they wouldn't have allowed her to 
be a lady in waiting because the women had to be just perfection to be around the queen. And she was a lady in waiting before she was queen. So she would have been eliminated. And especially her family trying to make her have a a good marriage prospect. If she had anything wrong with her, they would have, you know, lost any of those deals because she had other arrangements in the works. So it doesn't make sense. I've seen even movies where they've portrayed her like, you know, wearing gloves all the time to hide the six finger or other ones where there's just like a little tiny fingernail coming off of her hand. Yeah. Even the way movies try to do it, it's bad. It's super weird. (laughs) So weird. And when they discovered her body after they were doing some restoration work at St. Peter's, None of the bodies that they uncovered had an extra digit on their hand. So they are really confident they have the right body and they reinterred her in the Victorian era. So she actually has a nice, you know, uh, it's not really a tomb. She has a nice area and she has a marker now. That body did. That we all walk over. Yeah. On the marble floor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. If you ever go to one of those old churches in Europe, you're stepping on dead people no matter where you're at. (laughs) (laughs) They're shoved everywhere. They're in the floor. They're in the walls. They're everywhere. And also, there are a few people that said that she had a third boob, but also not likely. Henry did comment on her breastuses in some letters, like the stalkery ones I talked about. He called them pretty duckies, which I also find kind of odd. But yeah, no, nothing was ever commented in her lifetime other than people making really rude remarks about her being flat chested. My biggest evidence of this being false is that there were ambassadors that I mentioned before that hated her. And if she would have had anything wrong with her, he would have mentioned it a gazillion times in letters back to Spain because he tried to bring up everything wrong with her and he didn't mention it once. So I feel like that's the biggest evidence is that her enemies didn't use it against her. And a lot of the bad things that came out about her including her having moles and projecting teeth and jaundice which is another thing people said it came from a catholic propagandist nicholas sander and he was super mad about them not being catholic anymore so a lot of the stuff came after him after she had already died yeah i was like didn't he not even live like while she lived either yeah a lot of these people didn't. And again, like I said, Elizabeth, when she became queen, people were trying to tear her down too. And they were attacking Anne all over again for her being the daughter of the treasonous witch and all that good stuff. But And also Henry liked hot women. If we exactly. know anything about him, he liked hotties. Mm-hmm. Like the brain is a bonus, sure. Because <laughs> of course he grew up with such strong women like Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret Beaufort, his own mother, Elizabeth of York. But if, if Anne had had any of these things wrong, like you said, mm-hmm. she A, wouldn't have been in Henry's eye and she wouldn't have been at court at all. Exactly. She would have been stuck at Heber Castle in the attic, the crazy auntie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which leads me to my next one is that her looks. Uh, a lot of people describe her as being hideous. <laughs> and that's just not true. There was one Venetian diplomat, Francesco Santos. Sanuto that said, quote, not one of the handsomest women in the world. She has middling stature, smart or swarthy complexion, long neck, wide mouth, a bosom, not much raised and eyes, which were black, but beautiful. So, I mean, at least he has one kind of compliment, but not not great. And the idea that people didn't like how she looked is she didn't fit the mold of what was considered beautiful at the time. 
At that time, you wanted to be blue-eyed and blonde and voluptuous and have almost see-through translucent skin. And she wasn't that. She had olive complexion. She had dark hair, dark eyes. She was very slender and flat-chested. So she wasn't what was fashionable. And that's probably what made her stand out because she went to France for a long time. And in the French court, she was quite stunning. So she had confidence waltzing back into England being like, look at me. And it did catch people's attention. Just she was so different. Do we have any idea what her sister Mary Bolin looked like? Was Mary blonde with blue eyes in contrast with her? Yeah, she was more similar to what was at court. Pretty sure. Yeah, and that portrait they think is her. She's yeah, blonde. I'm pretty sure. For most accounts, they think that she was more what was acceptable at court. Because Anne was very striking. That's how most people kind of described her. It's just strikingly different from everybody else. And the next one is that she miscarried a deformed child or a demon. And this one's just sad to me. She had a lot of miscarriages while married to Henry VIII. And a lot of sciencey studies now think that perhaps Henry had a different blood type than his wives. Like a negative blood type. So if yeah. Anne was positive and her babies were negative, or even if Elizabeth, her first child, was negative, it would change it where she would have several miscarriages afterwards. Because even now, you have to get shots if you have a different blood type. Um, like, I have a negative blood type, so if I ever had children, I'd have to get those shots so that my body wouldn't rebel. But they didn't know that. And it makes sense because all his wives had a lot of issues with childbirth. So she did have a lot of miscarriages. And the rumors kind of swirled around her final one, which occurred the day of Catherine of Aragon's funeral. And it came really soon after Henry was in a jousting accident. So a lot of people think that she was shaken up. She thought he was dead. It was a really bad accident. So it could have caused a shock and she lost the baby. But what's weirder is that Henry, he actually said he was like, I kind of believed her more when she said that seeing Jane Seymour on my lap made her miscarry than like seeing me unconscious for a few hours. Yeah. And she'd also just been struggling with keeping Henry's eye. You know, she was mad. I'm sure she was. I like how the Tudors, I don't really like a lot of portrayals of Anne Boleyn because a lot of them are pretty awful. But the Tudors, I think, did a pretty good job in her just being so frustrated (laughs) being like, I'm pregnant all the time. You're cheating but on the wrong people because you know the Seymours had their eye on the throne and she knew it she was very smart so I think at that point she was really frustrated and probably knew that he was probably trying to find a way to get rid of her too if she didn't have a son and by all accounts a lot of people said this baby was a son so I'm sure that was really painful for her too but there's no proof that the baby was deformed and some people said it was shapeless and that's the whole witchcraft thing but that was not it. Anybody that was there and her nurses and stuff said that it was a normal miscarriage. It was just really tragic. And then next, the whole incest thing. <sighs> I I hate it. Philippa Gregory, the author, I think is a travesty to historical writing. I know she does historical People fiction. People say that a lot. And then I feel like then they also like invite Philippa Gregory to like the lecture. Yeah, I would never let her on my podcast. <laughs> I just dislike her writing because she takes the most powerful women in history and just breaks them down to these weak women just pining after men that have no mind of their own. And it just frustrates me. So her book is the one I think people associate with the incest part, because in her book, Anne does try to have sex with her brother because she's so desperate to have a child. That did not happen there. 
were probably only two men Anne was allowed to be with alone without Henry, and that would be her dad and her brother. So maybe that's where some of these rumors came from. But any of the moments that were supposedly when she was cheating on Henry, she was either pregnant, she just miscarried, she just had a child, or she was not even in the same town as these people. So all these allegations were so wildly inaccurate. They were just drumming up any charge they could possibly come up with. And plus, with all the other men that she was accused of cheating with, she was never alone. She always had her ladies-in-waiting with her. And even when she was sleeping, if she was not with Henry, she had somebody sleeping at the foot of her bed. And that's just How else are you going to stay warm? Yeah. <laughs> it's just life of being a queen, you know? They just protection, but also making sure you're not up to doing that shady stuff. So there was just no way she could have. But it was the easiest way to get rid of her is to call her a traitor and then say she was cheating. And then the incest was just the final nail in the coffin, which was really sad because all the executions of all those men were really bad, really horrific. And then the other factor is Anne was deeply religious, deeply religious. And she valued her beliefs and she would not risk her immortality she would not risk doing that by cheating on henry because i think i saw somewhere that they would have uh gotten Anne off the jury of the peers would have gotten her off if not for the incest claim because the people just found that to be just so egregious well it's true and thomas cromwell actually picked the jury so by most accounts historians believe that he picked them telling them like you were gonna make her guilty no matter what you believe so she had no chance and she knew it Cromwell hated her a lot of people hated her but he really hated her and he went in making sure that everybody was instructed to make sure she was guilty and there were you know please I think she at one time asked well can I just go to a nunnery can I can I just throw me away just make me go somewhere. Just let me see my daughter occasionally. And they were like, no, you're going to die. So it was really sad. I think she would be fun. I think, I think we could hang. And is she your favorite wife of Henry's? Probably. I know she's everybody's favorite. I do like Catherine of Aragon, but I, I don't know. I just feel, I really like Anne just because she really pushed back on the norm really pushed back on the religious aspects of things and also that she wanted to help poor people and wanted to stop getting people murdered for no reason. And I just really like her. I think the other Anne, I really like her too. Anna Cleves. She doesn't get a lot of credit, but I mean, she survived. She got her castle. She also lived in Hever. You know, she got to live a nice life. She was nice to all the kids. She probably had a good deal. And then the last wife, you know, she was the one that survived, I feel. She's pretty cool. But then she she got wrapped up in that Seymour mess we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do appreciate that she kind of, you know, reversed some of the things about the children. Because at that point, Elizabeth was still a quote-unquote bastard. And she kind of brought them back into the fold. Which, you know, without that, there's no telling what would have happened. I mean, it was still pretty bloody after Henry died with all the... Or after Edward died, everybody going for the throne. Poor, poor baby Jane. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, didn't work out well for her, but I think I also really like Elizabeth. I think she's one of my favorite of the Tudor dynasty. But 
I like strong female leads, I guess. That's probably where I get to. Kina, tell the people where they can find you. We had so much having you, so much fun having you on today. This was so cool. And it's always nice to he hear from other history and tutor nerds because sometimes I feel like I'm just talking into the wind. So oh, to hear someone that's just yes. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh, finally where I belong. Yes. Yes. That's why I have a podcast. I just constantly talk about history. My husband's like, you need to find something to channel this into. That is not me because I don't care. <laughs> like, uh, there has to be people that love history. So yeah, historically, if you can find it on all major podcasting platforms, you can find me on social media. That's historical AF pod across the board, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can email me, historicalafpod at gmail.com. And yeah, basically Google historical AF. I will pop up. Amazing. Thank you so much. And as she becomes the new queen, she has way more servants than Catherine ever had. She actually has 250 servants just to attend to her personal needs. And that goes, you know, from her confessors to people who are running the stable. She's got 60 maids of honor who are accompanying her to social events, you know, attending to her every need. And, you know, there's like layers to the court. So not all 60 of these women are having an interaction with her on a daily basis, but they want to. She's got several priests, confessors, chaplains, religious advisors. And uh, one of these is actually a man named Matthew Parker, who becomes one of the chief architects of the Anglican Reformation. And he actually, when Anne realizes that her marriage with Henry is going south, he actually she actually entrusts Matthew to take care of Elizabeth if she knows that she's not going to make it. Her motto while she's queen is the most happy and her uh, personal symbol is the white falcon. And remember, Anne is a big fan of the hunt. She's a big fan of horse riding. So that makes a lot of sense. Would you have a falcon while you're riding a horse? Yes. Yes, I'm pretty wow. sure. I think you use falcons for the hunt. That's pretty badass. Like... Talking about her hair just like flowing and I'm imagining her just like riding with this beautiful bird through the it field. seems very Elizabeth. I think that that's definitely a symbol that Elizabeth probably looked to later. Like, oh, my mother used the falcon. I'm going to use the falcon. I'm going to wear her necklace and I'm going to have my hair long and flowing a la Cate Blanchett. Yeah. <laughs> wow. With the official consummation of marriage being made, Henry and Anne conceived their first child sometime in the second week of December 1532. By February, it was pretty common knowledge that Anne was expecting, but I can imagine the hesitancy of excitement uh, just because we had our former fatal fortune, Catherine of Aragon, had many miscarriages. So we saw later on the announcements of her marriages were not really uh, taken taken. Into consideration yeah, people didn't tip people. her hats when no. she was coming through. Like, remember, people didn't even tip their hats for her. But she apparently uh, is joking around in court around this time, you know, talking about cravings of apples and things like that. And by Easter, at that point, on top of the world, had everything she wants, a child, Henry being queen, and Catherine was no longer uh, considered that. So she was out of her life. So now at around six months pregnant, she does have to go through that exhausting coronation. But for the most part, the beginning of her pregnancy goes off without a hitch. Eric Ives does cite that Henry was not doing so well, even at times hoping for a miscarriage, if it meant Anne would survive, which like, mm, I don't know. 
okay, Henry, go off, King. What? You really want a son. Don't act like you don't want a son. Mm-hmm. Also, remember, doctors were just playing guesswork with women's bodies. So I'm sure that was something he was pr- worried about, or at least I would be worried about, because uh, we saw Catherine not be handled too well with, with them. And uh, in August of that same year, she's put in a room prepared at Greenwich Palace, and it's the place where Henry was born. And it's a lot nicer of a room than the one that Catherine was giving birth in. It. She's in this decorated room with tapestries and carpets, notably no iconography of any kind of animal for fear it would, quote, trigger fantasies in the queen's mind, which might lead to the child being deformed, unquote. Again, men playing, yeah, men playing guesswork with, with women's bodies and minds. Nothing that we haven't ha- happened upon before. She stayed with her ladies in the room, eating and praying, and no men were allowed in. And on the 7th of September, she gives birth to Elizabeth, named after Henry's grandmother, Elizabeth of York, and possibly also Anne's um, mother. You know, mother, Elizabeth Howard. Elizabeth had her father's red hair and her mother's dark eyes. And the birth went perfectly, except for the fact that Elizabeth was not a boy. And that was something that Anne and Henry were hoping for, was an heir. Not to mention, astrologists and doctors were sure it would be a boy. Um, Playing guesswork again? I guess I have no idea. However, Elizabeth is regarded as Henry's, quote, first legitimate, uh, which is kind of mean to Mary. Let's not forget. He, uh, He does still have Mary. But yeah, really he's like fully like a, a teenager. Yeah, they really figured that they would have plenty of more tries to get a son. You know, she's baptized as like the high and mighty princess. Uh, one of her godparents is even her sister Mary. Like she attends the baptism and like has to hear them call her what she was. I felt really bad for Mary learning that they uh, regarded her as that. That's probably why she was so crazy when she was ruling. <laughs> By January 8th, 1536, news of Catherine of Aragon's death had reached the king and queen. We mentioned this in the Catherine of Aragon episode, which you should definitely check out again. But uh, they both wear yellow to the funeral. Maybe a symbol of mourning in Spain, but we talked about it. I thought they didn't go to the funeral. I don't think that they actually go to the funeral. I do think that they recognize that she died, though. Because, like, not even – Mary doesn't go to the funeral either. But but they wear yellow in regards to – the passing of Catherine of Aragon, um, which, yeah, most people did not take uh, to mean something like mourning uh, after someone's death. But Mary doesn't really trust Anne uh, because there is a rumor that Anne killed or poisoned Catherine. And this is, again, yeah, because her heart is uh, found to be blackened. So there's an immediate conclusion and they jump to poison. Although most medical experts say know today that it was probably cancer now Anne is pregnant again and just like Catherine there is a lot riding on her to give birth to a boy and since the marriage to Henry was so I don't know not really the way things were done Henry is a widower so he feels he can actually marry whoever and he starts courting Jane Seymour gives her a locket and uh, this makes Anne pretty furious it said that she ripped it off of Jane's neck so hard that her hand bled. And this anger is one of the possible theories as to why Anne miscarries at three months. The other theory 
you know, being Catherine's funeral, triggering it because it did happen um, on the same day that Catherine is buried. And it was thought that that was going to be a male heir, the thing that they were hoping for. And this necklace that Henry had gifted her, this wasn't like a like a joke will necklace you could just revolve. Like this was like the way that they describe it is like this is a padlock. The woman ripped a padlock off this woman. Oh, yeah. It seemed like a pretty sturdy uh, and very well put. It wasn't from Claire's necklace. Yeah. <laughs> Henry had also gotten in that jousting incident. So he's out of commission and not helping Anne through any of this. And to top it all off, Henry decides now that the marriage to Anne was a mistake, that it was, it was deceived, uh, and he was seduced into the marriage by means of sortilege, French for spells. Henry then moves Jane in officially, and Anne's brother George is now no longer given the prestigious honor of Order of the Garter, a senior-most no. knightship. Missed out on that. And now that honor is bestowed to Sir Nicholas Carew. We're playing with spite all the time over here. And speaking of spite, now we have to get into the matter of Anne's death. Many historians believe that the catalyst for her execution was actually played out by her longtime friend, Thomas Cromwell. This is seen in letters between Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, and Charles V, as well as being discussed in the Spanish Chronicle. It is very clear from the beginning that the goal is to get Anne out, and all because she disagreed with Cromwell's redistribution of church revenues and his foreign policy. She favored the French alliance and wanted money to be put into education, while Cromwell gave himself a cut from the king's coffers, like the strong boxes of treasure, I guess, and he also had them filled up for the king. So hoarding a lot of money that Anne does not agree with. This leads many to believe that Anne was seen as the enemy to Cromwell. Cromwell's biographer, John Schofield, maintains that there was no ill will between them and that Cromwell only got involved when Henry demanded it. So now let's get into what Anne is accused of. Specifically, she's accused of adultery, incest, and treason. In April of 1536, a musician named Mark Smeaton is arrested and later confesses to being Anne's lover, possibly through means of torture. On May Day, another quarter named Sir Henry Norris is arrested and lucked out on the torture since he's an aristocrat. Norris denies his guilt and swore Anne's innocence as well. However, a conversation he had with Anne about his coming over to see her had already been overheard by Henry's men in April. So they have that witness testimonial, apparently. So in April that same year, she actually said to a courtier, you look for dead men's shoes. For if aught came to the king, but good, you would look to have me. And people Hmm. heard that. Why don't you come on over, Sir Henry Norris, Anne said. Literally, literally. Why don't you, yeah, come come hang. Um, Like, uh, we're waiting for the king to die because you're next. So in that same week, Sir Francis Wheaton, Sir Thomas Wyatt, and Sir Richard Page were also arrested under the same charge of adultery. The biggest and final accusation and arrest is Anne's own brother, George, who was charged with incest and treason. The next day, May 2nd, Anne is arrested and brought to the Tower of London. So these you know, four, five men, including George, are tried on May 12th, and three of the men deny it. Mark Smeaton, however, confesses, much to the pleasure of the Crown, and Anne is now officially accused of adultery. 
incest, and high treason. But keep in mind that the three men who don't confess, if you're of noble blood, you don't get tortured. But Mark Smeaton, since he's just an average musician, he got tortured. Yeah. So that's why he confessed. Definitely. I would feel pretty pressured. uh, And, you know, you hear so many times that people will just admit whatever um, under means of torture. So I can imagine that that was probably a catalyst to him confessing that. And the reason that it is treason is because of the adultery and the implications that that would have on the crown's lineage. So both Anne and her brother were found guilty of this crime and sentenced to death. The other men are also accused and killed on the 17th of May. And the same day, Anne's marriage to Henry is considered null and void. On the 19th, it is Anne's final day. She's apparently ready for life to be over and somewhat happy about it. Henry changed the typical sentence of treason for women t- from burning to beheading. Thank you. Nice That's so nice so of him. Nice. And to make it even more special, he got an expert swordsman to use a sword instead of your typical axe beheading. So that's pretty nice. Thanks. Anne attends mass one final time, and William Kingston, the constable of the tower, joins in. He notes that she swears multiple times that she was never unfaithful to Henry, and she's praying a lot in church. It's morning. Anne climbs the north side of the White Tower with two female attendants, and she's in a red petticoat with a dark gray gown of damask trimmed with fur and a mantle of ermine underneath. These are her final words. Quote, Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die, but I pray God save the king, and send him long to reign over you, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord, and if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best." And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartedly desire you all to pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God, I commend my soul. Unquote. With that, her mantle is removed. With a few parting words to her weeping ladies, she kneels, and a blindfold is tightened around her head. She knelt upright and continued to ask for pity on her soul. With one swift cut of the blade, it's over. Anne is buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of St. Peter of Vincula. In 1876, however, when Queen Victoria is renovating, her bones were identified and then placed in a now-marked grave on the marble floor. Thanks, Queen V. Cute. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention is that when Anne is saying at Mass, like, I never betrayed the king, she says, I never betrayed the king with my body. So she knows that the shit that she was saying to these dudes of you look for dead men's shoes, she knew that she had treasoned and betrayed the king in that way. So even if she never like went the full way, she knows that if she argues or anything, that any of her surviving family members are going to just get way worse of it. I did find it pretty remarkable that 
it seemed that both her and Catherine, even up until their final days, were like, "Oh, Henry, I'm so sorry. Like, you were you were such a good prince to me, or a good king to me. Like, why are you trying to protect this man? He's he's literally having you killed." But I also think she, her parents are still alive. So if Anne says something that so mm. besmirches the king, then it'll probably get her parents killed. So it's to save her parents. Yeah, and they yeah. only like live in disgrace for a couple more years. But uh, anyway, she went on to be the mother of uh, you know the greatest queen England's ever seen. So good for her. Yeah, she she gave us that at the very least, you know. Anne Boleyn, she's got a crazy legacy. I would argue she's up there with Cleopatra as one of the most famous women in all of world history. Like a man split from the Catholic Church, his whole country, for this woman. Yeah. And then her daughter then carried out the legacy and finished the switch to Protestantism. Guys, some final reminders before the episode ends. Our final episode will come out in three weeks and is on Mary Wollstonecraft, icon, queen of all, picked by Nathan. And then our season opener is going to be Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. Because, you know, we love history and crossovers and all that good stuff. And uh, I wanted to wish everyone a beautiful Pride Month for June. And we have a special Pride Month special that I am going to write about Queen Judy Garland. So, everyone, there's plenty to look forward to about Fatal Fortunes while we are on break. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to follow us, like us, give us some reviews. We are at Fatal Fortunes Podcast or at Fatal Fortunes, anywhere you can find anything. And, you know, send us some idea, guys. We we love other people's ideas. So, roll them on over to us. On Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. See you next time. <laughs>